Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Bill Moore fidgeted in his seat. Gazing out the window of his parked car, he wondered what he was doing sitting in the parking lot of this dusty Albuquerque diner. During the promotional tour for Bill's new book, The Roswell Incident, he had received a call from a man who identified himself as a colonel at Offutt Air Force Base. The colonel wanted to arrange a meeting. When Bill asked why, all the mysterious man would tell him was, we think you're the only one we've heard that seems to know what he's talking about. Bill was curious and agreed to the meeting, but so far, nobody had shown. Bill sighed. He wondered if this was all just a big prank. Just as he was about to leave, someone tapped on his passenger window. He turned his head and saw a bright red tie set against a blindingly white dress shirt. As the two men settled into a corner booth, the man in the red tie got right down to business. He told Bill that he represented a group of U.S. intelligence officers who were tired of the secrecy around UFOs. They thought the public should have access to all the relevant information and wanted to use a reputable UFO researcher to give it to them. Bill was intrigued. It made sense that they would contact him. His exhaustively researched book on Roswell had been well-received, and he was a rising star in the UFO world. The man in the red tie told him he would give Bill small pieces of the truth over time, and Bill could release it as he saw fit. But of course, there was a catch. The U.S. government doesn't just give things out for free. The man told Bill that if he wanted in on the action, he would have to destroy the UFO community from within. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. 
And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to our second and final episode on Dulce Base, a secret joint operation between humans and aliens that is rumored to have existed in the late 1970s and 1980s. Last week, we followed New Mexico State Police Officer Gabe Valdez and his friend, an engineer named Paul Benowitz, as they investigated strange cattle mutilations around the community of Dulce, New Mexico. During their investigations, the two men noticed strange lights would appear in the sky every time there was a mutilation. Paul observed these same lights flying over Kirtland Air Force Base outside of Albuquerque. Convinced they were connected, he notified the proper authorities. Paul was certain that the officials at Kirtland would be skeptical of his UFO story. Much to his surprise, they encouraged him to continue his research. But Paul quickly became frustrated when the government refused to officially help his and Officer Valdez's investigation. However, it seemed like they gained a new ally when UFO researcher Bill Moore showed Paul a top-secret government document confirming that the lights Paul had observed were real UFOs. This week, we'll continue to track Paul and Officer Valdez in their attempts to locate the site of the secret base they believed was located in the mountains above Dulce. But with their supposed allies trying to throw Paul and Valdez off the scent, discovering the truth became far more complicated than either man could imagine. When Bill Moore gave Paul Benowitz the secret Project Aquarius document, it rejuvenated Paul's belief that the strange lights he was seeing over Kirtland Air Force Base were extraterrestrial UFOs. Paul had been frustrated when the government refused to dedicate any resources towards his investigation into the lights, but now he had proof that they had taken him seriously after all. But what Paul didn't know was that the document was a fake. During his meeting with the man in the red tie, who identified himself by the codename Falcon, Bill was promised the real truth behind UFOs. But in order to get it, Bill would have to feed other UFO researchers false information that would ultimately undermine their research. Bill didn't understand. He asked Falcon what the purpose of discrediting the UFO community was if he was going to give Bill the real truth anyway. Falcon leaned back in his seat and chuckled to himself. He explained to Bill that he didn't care if the world knew the truth about UFOs. What he really cared about was that Many UFO researchers were mistaking confidential government projects for alien technology. For Falcon, it was more important to discredit the researchers who were getting too close to uncovering these secret U.S. government projects than for the truth about UFOs to be revealed. Bill reluctantly agreed to the deal. He felt terrible about betraying his fellow ufologists, but he figured that if the truth came out, then the ends would justify the means. Bill received his first disinformation assignment on November 17, 1980, when he was invited to Kirtland Air Force Base to meet with Richard Doty, an agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or Air Force OSI. Doty told Bill that a few weeks earlier, 
He had visited the house of Paul Benowitz, an engineer who believed he was seeing UFOs flying over Kirtland Base. Paul also believed he was intercepting the UFO's transmissions. In reality, Paul was actually witnessing confidential military projects by multiple weapons laboratories at Kirtland. Doty declined to tell Bill what those projects were, but promised they were important enough that Paul couldn't be allowed to find out about them. But simply telling Paul to stop his research wouldn't be enough. Paul was already paranoid. If Doty told him to cease and desist, it would only make Paul more determined to keep going. They would have to lead Paul to decide to end his research on his own. To achieve that end, Doty wanted to humiliate Paul in front of his peers in the UFO community. Generally speaking, the UFO community was accepting of even the wildest UFO theories. But if a ufologist was caught lying about their research, that was a different story altogether. Doty then showed Bill a computer document labeled Project Aquarius. It was a detailed analysis of the photos and 8mm film Paul had given Doty of the lights flying over Kirtland. The analysis conclusively determined that the objects Paul was observing were actually confidential military aircraft. But that's not what Doty wanted Paul to believe. In February 1981, Doty sent Bill an edited version of the document. This time, it said the analysis determined that some of the photos were genuine, unidentified flying objects. Doty instructed Bill to give Paul the fake document as soon as possible. The idea was to give Paul this fake document and hope he would take it to the press as confirmation that the government really was aware of UFOs. Then the Air Force would release the original document. The hope was that once it was revealed that Paul's document was a fake, his reputation within the UFO community would be in the gutter and nothing he said from that point on would be taken seriously. Bill was facing a crisis of conscience. Now that he had his first official disinformation mission, he wasn't sure if he could go through with it. He desperately wanted to find out the truth behind UFOs, but he didn't know if he could throw Paul under the bus to get it. Months passed and Bill still couldn't bring himself to give Paul the fake document. Finally, in the early summer of 1981, he received a phone call from Richard Doty. Much to Bill's surprise, Doty wasn't mad. He promised that the agreement Bill had made with Falcon was still on, as long as Bill gave Paul the fake document immediately. The moment Bill hung up with Doty, he called Paul Benowitz. At first, Paul was confused. He had never met Bill before. But Bill promised he had information on the UFOs that Paul would want to know. Paul was intrigued. He had just heard from his friend, Officer Gabe Valdez, about the discovery of radar chaff at a cattle mutilation site. He asked Bill if he knew anything about that. But Bill refused to say anything more. He insisted that he had to deliver the information face to face. A few days later, Bill visited Paul at his office. When Bill saw Paul, the enormity of what he was about to do hit him with full force. Bill could tell Paul wasn't well. He was extremely fidgety and he was extremely disheveled. 
It was clear he hadn't slept well in weeks. Paul talked a mile a minute as he showed Bill the various pieces of UFO evidence he had collected. Finally, Bill interrupted him. It was time to execute the mission. Bill played on Paul's evident paranoia and said they had to go somewhere they couldn't be overheard. Paul immediately went quiet and nodded in understanding. The two men entered a cramped storage closet. To play up the moment, Bill grabbed a radio and turned it all the way up to foil any listening devices. Finally, Bill handed the fake document over to Paul. As Paul scanned the document, his eyes lit up with joy. He bought into it without a second's hesitation. As Bill watched Paul read, a knot of guilt began to grow in his stomach. He immediately regretted the part he had played in the deception. It was too late to take the document back, but Bill thought he could at least keep Paul from making a fool of himself. Bill begged Paul not to take the document public. He argued that they could both be in a lot of danger if the government found out they were leaking confidential information. Paul agreed. It wasn't worth it to go public with this information. At least, not yet. Once Bill left, Paul grabbed the phone and called Officer Gabe Valdez. Over the past two years, the two of them had investigated strange cattle mutilations and their apparent connection to the lights Paul was observing at Kirtland. Although the investigation and its endless stream of dead ends had frustrated both men, it had also cemented a powerful bond of friendship between them. Although Valdez was willing to entertain Paul's theory that the lights came from alien spaceships, he personally believed that the lights came from human technology. When Paul read the Project Aquarius document to him, Valdez pointed out that it only said the objects were unidentified, which didn't necessarily mean they were extraterrestrial. Regardless, both men agreed that the government was hiding information. They resolved to redouble their efforts to get to the truth. Meanwhile, Bill Moore went to Richard Doty and told them that he had given Paul the fake document. But as the days went by, Paul didn't come forward with the fake Project Aquarius document. Bill feared that Paul's silence meant that the deal he had made with Doty and Falcon would be called off. But Doty didn't seem to mind that Paul didn't act on the false information Bill had given him. He reassured Bill that their deal was still on. They just had to try a new strategy to get rid of Paul. Meanwhile, Paul was planning his next move as well. The document Bill had given him confirmed Paul's belief that the lights he had seen over Kirtland were extraterrestrial UFOs. Now, he wanted to find out what they were doing. And he suspected that the answer lay in the jagged mountains above Dulce. Coming up, the lines between truth and fiction get blurrier as Paul and Officer Valdez continue their investigation. And now, back to the story. After Paul Benowitz met with Bill Moore in the summer of 1981, he was convinced that Bill could be a crucial ally in Paul and Officer Valdez's investigations. In the aftermath of their meeting, Paul started making more frequent trips out to Dulce to accompany Officer Valdez on his near-constant cattle mutilation calls. 
Bill was staying in regular contact with Paul. When he found out about the trips to Dulce, he asked Paul if he could come along. Although he had chickened out at the last minute with the fake Project Aquarius document, Bill was recommitted to his mission to help Richard Doty. He felt terrible about deceiving Paul, but Bill realized that this was the price he had to pay if he was going to get his hands on legitimate UFO information. Bill thought these trips to Dulce would be the perfect opportunity to gather intel on Paul. The closer Bill could get to Paul, the easier it would be to figure out what kind of false information to give him. Paul told Bill that the cattle mutilations weren't his primary reason for visiting Dulce. He was mostly interested in the lights that always appeared near the mutilation scene, which he believed were connected to the lights that appeared above Kirtland Air Force Base. The previous summer, Paul had conducted hypnotherapy sessions with Myrna Hansen, a woman who believed she was abducted by aliens and taken to an underground base. Paul and Valdez believed the base was located somewhere in the mountains around Dulce, and they were certain that this base was where the UFOs were taking the mutilated cattle. During their trips to Dulce throughout the second half of 1981, Valdez, Paul, and Bill spent hours on end chasing the mysterious lights. However, they were never able to track the UFOs to an underground base. The three of them made for an odd trio as they drove all over the hills around Dulce. The stern, uniformed Valdez in the driver's seat, Paul sitting shotgun, trying not to throw up, while Bill, always in the same motorcycle jacket, sat in the back, carefully observing everything around him. The whole time, Bill was in contact with Richard Doty. Doty was delighted that Paul's attention was drawn away from Kirtland. Now that he knew Paul's focus was on Dulce, Doty began to formulate a plan to keep it that way. By late 1981, all the preparations were in place. Ironically enough, the process to permanently take Paul's attention away from Kirtland Base would begin at the base itself. In December 1981, Doty asked Paul if he could come to Kirtland as soon as possible. He had something to show him. When Paul arrived at Kirtland, he found Doty waiting for him at a landing pad, a military helicopter at the ready. Paul was impressed by this official display. He asked Doty where they were going, but the Air Force OSI officer only smiled. He said it was a surprise. The helicopter flew to the north, flying over a landscape Paul was all too familiar with. They were going to Dulce. As they flew over the pine-covered expanse of the Archuleta Mesa, Doty told Paul to look down. If he looked carefully, Paul could see a narrow dirt road winding through the hills. Paul's heart leaped into his throat. Far below, Paul could see a series of small clearings with storage tanks, equipment shacks, and jeeps parked around large vents that spewed out thick white steam. Doty confided to Paul that he couldn't keep silent any longer. Paul and Valdez's suspicion was correct. At great risk, Doty was showing Paul the secret base he had been searching for. Paul was speechless. He had been worried he was going crazy, but now his hard work was validated. 
all the sleepless nights poring over footage of strange lights and mysterious transmissions, the long car rides with Valdez as they chased after disappearing lights, it was all worth it. The moment he got home, Paul called Valdez with the great news. When Paul told Valdez what he had seen, the normally reserved police officer let out a triumphant shout. This was it. It was time to tell the world the truth. Over the past few months, Paul and Valdez had been advising an Albuquerque news crew that was working on a documentary about the cattle mutilations. They thought this news crew would be the perfect choice to help them reveal the base's existence. They were already familiar with Paul and Valdez's theory about the underground base near Dulce. And they had their own helicopter. Paul knew the way to the base by heart. He could never forget what he had seen. As the news helicopter hovered over the pine trees, Paul pointed out the roads and structures that Dodie had shown him. Just as the cameraman was lining up his shot, three massive helicopters came tearing over a nearby ridge. Valdez recognized them as top-of-the-line Blackhawk helicopters. As the helicopters got closer, he told the news chopper pilot to head back to the airport immediately. Valdez hoped that leaving the area would be enough, but the Blackhawks followed the defenseless news helicopter in hot pursuit. One thing the crew could all agree on was that they didn't want to get shot out of the sky. Valdez directed the pilot to land at a local airport. He hoped that as a law enforcement officer, he could convince the soldiers pursuing them to back off. As the news helicopter settled onto the tarmac, the Blackhawks landed only a few hundred feet away. Almost immediately, black-clad soldiers started pouring out. It didn't seem like they were interested in talking. But Valdez was determined to try. He took a deep breath and jumped out of the helicopter, walking toward the wall of soldiers surrounding the Blackhawks. The soldier's commander stepped forward to meet Valdez. Valdez noticed the patch on the commander's uniform. These guys were Delta Force, some of the military's most elite soldiers. They did not mess around. But Valdez refused to be intimidated. He stepped up into the commander's face. This was his jurisdiction, and he wasn't going anywhere until he found out what Delta Force was doing in his town. In response, the soldiers pointed their weapons at the helicopter. The commander told Valdez that this was his last chance to leave before anyone got hurt. Valdez gripped the handle of his pistol, itching for a fight, but he knew the odds were against him. He turned around and headed back to the news chopper. That night, as Valdez and Paul sat around Valdez's dinner table, they agreed they had found something the military didn't want them to see. The experience had frightened the news crew so thoroughly that they refused to publicize what they had seen. Valdez agreed with them. His face-off with the Delta Force commander had convinced him that getting the answer to the cattle mutilations wasn't worth angering the U.S. military. But Paul was still determined to keep moving forward. Valdez knew that there was no talking him out of it. He wished him well and promised Paul that he would always have his support if he needed it. Over the next few weeks, Paul compiled all his research into a document he titled Project Beta. 
He believed it was his magnum opus. It was proof that would expose the real truth behind UFOs. By the end of 1981, Paul had a preliminary version of his report ready. It detailed his belief that the lights he had seen over Kirtland Air Force Base were extraterrestrial UFOs, that those UFOs were responsible for the cattle mutilations, and that they transported the targeted cows to the secret facility outside of Dulce, where their alien pilots also implanted human abductees with mind control devices. And according to Paul, it was all done with the assistance of the U.S. government. Paul sent Project Beta to major UFO groups such as the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization and the Mutual UFO Network, as well as to prominent ufologists like Bill Moore. He also sent copies to the U.S. Senators of New Mexico and President Reagan. Paul sat back and waited for the news to start spreading. For days on end, Paul sat by his phone waiting for a call. He checked the mail several times a day, hoping for a response. After a few weeks, a reply finally came. When Paul opened the mailbox, he couldn't believe his eyes. There was an envelope stamped with the seal of the President of the United States. Paul ran inside and ripped open the envelope. But as he read the opening lines, his excitement faded away. It was nothing more than a stock response. The letter read, The Air Force investigation of unidentified flying objects began in 1948 and was known as Project Sign. Between 1948 and 1969, the Air Force investigated 12,618 sightings. Only 701 of these remain unexplained. The Air Force ended its UFO examinations in 1969 because no evidence could be found that the sightings were a threat to national security or represented visits from outer space. Paul wasn't surprised by the response. He didn't expect the government to acknowledge that it was jointly operating an underground base with aliens. If the UFO community believed him, then they could increase the scope of the investigation and come up with even more proof. But the response from the UFO community was much more muted than Paul had expected. None of the UFO societies would publish Project Beta. The report was typed in all capital letters and full of spelling and grammar mistakes. Many of Paul's claims of imminent alien invasion and sinister experiments were offered without clear evidence making the report seem more like the paranoid ravings of a madman than a well-researched document. When Bill Moore read the Project Beta report, the pangs of guilt returned. It was clear to him that Paul had become unhinged, and Bill felt like a large portion of the blame fell on his shoulders. So far, Richard Doty and the mysterious agent known as Falcon hadn't even provided Bill with any actionable intel. All the information he'd gotten was either wrong or impossible to verify. Bill was getting worried that they were just stringing him along. But now that Paul had made a fool of himself to the UFO community, he thought Doty and Falcon might be more forthcoming. With a heavy heart, Bill told Paul that he couldn't publicly endorse the Project Beta report. Paul was devastated. 
Of all people, he thought Bill would stand up for him. He decided to call Richard Doty and deliver the bad news. Paul told Doty that he felt like he failed him. Doty had risked so much to show him the base on the Archuleta Mesa, and Paul had nothing to show for it. Doty promised Paul that he had nothing to feel bad about. Project Beta was always going to be a long shot. Maybe someday people would be able to accept the truth. After hanging up with Paul, Doty opened a desk drawer and pulled out a bottle of whiskey. He took a sip, leaned back in his chair, and smiled. Mission accomplished. By giving Paul even more evidence to support his insane theories, he had driven the man to prematurely share his conclusions and thus discredit himself amongst the entire United States UFO community. Coming up, Paul suffers the effects of Doty's machinations. Now, back to the story. Richard Doty felt bad about what he had done to Paul Benowitz. He really did. But when Richard Doty was given a task, he executed it. The hardest part was convincing the higher-ups at Kirtland to give him the budget he needed to build a fake base out of nothing. It wasn't cheap to clear all that timber and make a road, or to airlift the old equipment, or to build the fake steam vents. At least it had been easy to convince the Army to let Delta Force conduct training exercises around the area. They had really enjoyed putting the fear of God into Paul, Valdez, and that news crew. Doty threw back the rest of his drink and poured himself another one. He was allowed to celebrate a job well done before moving on to the next mission. But Doty wasn't done with Paul Benowitz yet. A few weeks after Doty found out that nobody in the UFO community was taking Paul's research seriously, he got a call from Bill Moore. According to Bill, they had a problem. Paul was refusing to give up his investigation. He didn't care if nobody believed him. Discovering the truth was all that mattered. Armed with a significant income from his engineering firm, Paul had purchased a private airplane and was conducting his own recon missions over the Archuleta Mesa. Doty swore to himself, this could be a problem. In mid-1985, Paul was making one of his frequent flights over Archuleta Mesa. It was quiet as usual, but Paul remained alert. As Paul banked his plane above the trees, something caught his eye on the distant slope of Archuleta Mountain. He circled the plane around for another look. From Paul's vantage point, he could swear he saw burnt trees and what looked like a downed aircraft. He snapped a few photos and flew home to develop them at once. It was hard to see, but Paul was certain he could make out a broken plane whose wings formed a solid triangle. It definitely wasn't a normal aircraft. Paul immediately called Richard Doty to tell him what he'd found. Doty congratulated Paul for his keen eye. He told Paul that it sounded like he had seen a nuclear-powered UFO. Paul immediately jumped into the logistics of mounting an overland expedition to reach the crash site, but Doty stopped him. He said the radiation from the plane was severe. It would be too dangerous to investigate. 
Paul groaned in frustration. He didn't want to wait. But Doty advised patience. Getting a look at the UFO wasn't worth getting severe radiation poisoning. Eventually, Paul agreed to hold off on getting any closer to the wreck for the time being. Doty promised to keep him updated with any new developments. After he hung up, Doty rubbed his temples in frustration. He felt like he'd never get rid of Paul. He was proud of himself for coming up with the nuclear-powered aircraft bit, but there was still a lot of work to do. He poured himself a glass of whiskey, but this time it wasn't in celebration. The next few days were going to be long ones. Doty's explanation of potential radiation danger was enough to keep Paul away from the crash site for a while. But when weeks passed without any updates, Paul decided he had to go see it for himself. He called up Officer Valdez and asked if he'd be up for making a trip to the crash site. Although Valdez was hesitant to get entangled in secret government projects again, he agreed. It had been a long time since Valdez had a cattle mutilation case. He was worried the aircraft Paul had seen represented the possibility that the mutilations might soon start again. They had already caused over $1 million in damages for local ranchers. Valdez didn't want his community to be impacted more than it already was. Paul and Valdez set off for the crash site on November 8, 1985. They hoped that enough time had passed for some of the radiation to wear off, but both agreed that they couldn't hold off any longer. The going was extremely rough. There was no trail, so Paul and Valdez had to hack their way through the thick undergrowth. But finally, they emerged into a small clearing surrounded by broken trees, a large gouge in the soil, and nothing else. The aircraft Paul had seen was gone. He was disappointed, but not surprised. Whoever had built the aircraft must have come to clean it up. But just because the physical evidence was gone, that didn't mean all traces of the aircraft had disappeared. Doty had told Paul that the aircraft was nuclear-powered. If that were the case, then there would still be traces of its radiation. Paul took out a Geiger counter and started checking radiation levels. There was almost no trace of radiation. Paul was dejected. Doty had never led him astray before. Maybe he had the wrong information. Paul and Valdez headed home. Although the broken trees and gouge in the soil indicated that something had crashed on the mountain, they weren't any closer to getting any answers. Once Paul got home, he called Richard Doty and told him what he and Valdez had found. Doty smiled to himself. Paul was a thorn in his side, but he was easy to trick. He played stupid. Doty told Paul he hadn't ordered any cleanup operation and he had no clue why there was no trace of radiation around the crash site. He promised Paul he'd call his contacts and get to the bottom of it. On December 11th, Doty sent Paul a letter that he claimed was written by an intelligence officer with the NSA. This officer was going to tell Paul the full truth of what was going on at the underground base. The letter said that the aircraft Paul had seen was a stealth plane that Lockheed Martin had built with the aid of alien technology. 
it had been constructed at the underground base beneath the Archuleta Mesa. The letter then revealed that there was more than just alien technology at the base. It was occupied by the aliens themselves. Although these aliens were peaceful, there was another hostile race of aliens that wanted to destroy humanity. When they found out about the stealth plane, they shot it out of the sky. Paul was horrified. A war between humans and aliens could be imminent. He had to protect himself. A few months later, Bill Moore went to Paul's house to pay him a visit. Despite his role in helping Richard Doty execute the disinformation campaign against Paul, Bill had come to consider Paul his friend. It had been a while since Bill had heard from him and he was worried. When Paul opened the door, Bill almost recoiled in shock. In the last few months since Bill had seen him, Paul had lost a distressing amount of weight. He was clearly sleep deprived and had let his personal hygiene fall by the wayside. As Bill came inside, he felt like Paul's house felt more like a fortress than a home. There were guns and knives everywhere, and most of the windows and doors were barricaded. Paul showed Bill the letter he had received from the NSA agent. He told Bill that the aliens knew Paul was onto them, and they were coming through his walls at night to inject him with horrible drugs. Paul said that after he was drugged, the aliens would make him drive his car into the desert, but he had no memory of what he did once he was there. Bill noticed needle marks running all over Paul's right arm, indicating heavy drug use. Bill felt horrible for Paul, but he still couldn't bring himself to tell Paul that it had all been a lie. The most Bill could do was advise Paul to get out of the UFO game. But Paul insisted he was fine. Bill knew that wasn't the case. He called Richard Doty to talk to him about Paul. He asked if Doty had written the NSA letter. All Doty would say was that Paul's condition was unfortunate. He wouldn't take responsibility for Paul's extreme decline. In August 1988, Paul's condition had gotten so bad that his family had to check him in at the Anna Caseman Mental Health Facility in Albuquerque. He was discharged after a month, but never resumed his UFO investigations. Shortly after Paul was hospitalized, Richard Doty was transferred to a post in Germany. It seemed like his superiors wanted him as far away from the situation as possible. When Bill Moore found out what happened, he was consumed with guilt. He couldn't believe he had helped ruin another man's life, all in the pursuit of UFO knowledge that was never as legitimate as his contacts promised him it was. Bill realized he had been played. Doty and Falcon had strung him along, always promising him better information in exchange for completing the next task. But there was no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. There was only confusion, false information, and lies. And it had come at the price of a good man's sanity. Bill decided he had to come clean. He booked a prime speaking slot at the 1989 Mutual UFO Network Conference in Las Vegas, where he planned to reveal the role he had played in Richard Doty's disinformation campaign. Finally, the moment of truth arrived. 
As Bill gazed at the thousand-person capacity crowd, he had a moment of panic. He wasn't sure if he could go through with it. But then he remembered what he had done to Paul, how his selfishness had ruined another man's life. He had to tell people what he'd done. During Bill's two-hour speech, he laid everything out on the table, how Falcon and Richard Doty had recruited him, how he'd agreed to destroy other ufologists' reputations in exchange for what he thought was the real story behind UFOs, and worst of all, how he'd helped turn Paul Benowitz into a shell of his former self. The boos and jeers were so loud that Bill could barely be heard, but he pressed on. By the time he was done speaking, Bill was utterly exhausted. He knew he'd never be accepted in the UFO community again, but his conscience was finally clean. Officer Valdez had certainly had his fill of the UFO world as well. After Paul's hospitalization, Valdez requested a transfer to Albuquerque. He was happy to answer any questions people had about his investigations, but he stopped looking into the strange goings-on around Dulce. But was there anything out of the ordinary happening around Dulce? Or was it all just a giant ruse by the government to distract Paul Benowitz from observing secret projects at Kirtland Air Force Base? With all the facts in front of us, we can rate the believability of Dulce Base on a scale of 1 to 10. The existence of the base itself seems highly unlikely, but there are elements surrounding it that can't be fully explained. As of now, the closest thing to an official explanation for the cattle mutilations is the report from retired FBI agent Kenneth Rommel that they were most likely from natural causes. But all indications from Officer Valdez's investigation point to some form of human involvement, specifically the radar shaft that he discovered near one of the mutilation sites. As for the mysterious crashed aircraft that Paul saw on the Archuleta Mesa, it probably wasn't an alien-powered craft. Most likely, it was a crashed prototype of the Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk stealth plane. Although the F-117's black, triangular shape is fairly familiar in today's society, in the 1980s, it was extremely new technology. For many people during that time, its unusual design could seem alien. The timeline matches this theory. Most of the testing of the Nighthawk was done at Lockheed's facility in Nevada from 1976 to 1983, but there could have been demonstrations at Kirtland. While it doesn't seem likely that there was any alien activity in Dulce during the 1970s and 1980s, Paul Benowitz and Officer Gabe Valdez do seem to have come across something they shouldn't have. And for that, we're going to give Dulce Base a 5 on the believability scale. It's obvious that whatever the government was doing at Kirtland Air Force Base, they didn't want anyone finding out about it. And judging by the confusion that still swirls around the topic, it seems like they succeeded. Thanks for listening to our story on Dulce Base. 
You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Alex Benedin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.